we're in Genesis chapter 3. I want to pick up with verse 7. But let's review just a, a few things here in terms of this uh, study, first of all, of Genesis, and then where we are in the study. Uh, Genesis chapters 1 and 2 present God as creator, creator, uh, first of all, of all of the physical universe and everything in it. Uh, first chapter with the peak or apex of that being the creation of his image bearers, humanity, who both resemble him and are to represent him. He gives them dominion authority over his world. Second chapter 2 is a generalized focus on the sixth day with the apex or crown of that work being the creation of an institution, and that, of course, is marriage. Important. Well, I shouldn't say that. One of the important terms in chapter two is the conclusion that Moses reached, who I think wrote this, reaches at the end of chapter two that as God has created this institution, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And then he adds, and they were naked and not ashamed. Now, when we think of the word naked. Um, and appropriately so, in the English, we think of it as uh, without clothes. But the Hebrew for that word is deeper than that. Actually, it's, it's much deeper than that. And it not only does involve the idea of an awareness that you don't have any clothes on, but it also implies, and this is really, really important, that Adam and Eve were oblivious to evil. They didn't know the dangers that lurked. Now, remember that the name of the tree is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God said to them, the day you eat of that, you shall die. You shall be separated from me, and then you will, be, you will physically die. So this, um, this term naked is, is, is really, really important. They're clothed in innocence. They are so other-centered. They don't think of themselves. There's no selfishness, um, no uh, self-centeredness. So it's, a, it's, a, it's really a remarkable picture. They had no needs. God had given them the authority to cultivate all of the garden. He gave no restrictions, and um, he walked with them. They fellowshiped with them. They enjoyed that. But chapter 3, as we talked last week, the serpent, Revelation 12, 9, tells us that is Satan. And we know that also from the rest of the book. But nonetheless, he shows up, and he wants to find out one thing. He does not go at, to Adam, he goes to Eve. He wants to know, does she really understand and know what God said to her? And remember last week we went through that. She made three mistakes in her response to his question. Did God say you shouldn't eat from anything in the garden? And she responds and makes three errors. And so he immediately knows, I got her. And so he then moves to a much higher level, not only of creating doubt, but a denial in her mind and heart of God's goodness, of God's, of God's uh, um, best interest for them. And he, he essentially, and the, the word the text used, is he deceives her. And so she takes... And in, in verse, um, if, you, if you look again, this incredible words there, in, in verse 6, it says, She took, she ate, she gave, he ate. Words, quite honestly, of downward spiral. 
but it, it's, it's a remarkable, almost astonishing, bold, audacious refusal to obey God. So it tells us that as God had created them, he created them as free moral agents. He created them with the capacity to disobey him. If you want to, I would make it stronger, the capacity to rebel against him. And by that act of eating and by the act of giving and by the act of him taking, by the act of him eating, Adam and Eve have now joined the rebellion against God. They've joined with Satan. So, I mean, it's, I, I think you would agree, this has got to be the most tragic passage in the whole Bible. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's overwhelmingly tragic. And my wife, I think I've told you, my wife, there just a whole plethora of things that happen. She keeps, you know, it's all Adam's fault, isn't it? It's all Adam's fault. This is all Adam's fault. You know, it's just always understanding that if she and I were there, we would have probably done exactly the same thing. So, but it's just that, that uh, it, it, it is, it just it grabs you and you just sit back and reflect, how could they have done this? But it, it demonstrates the deceptive nature of Satan and the free moral agency of humanity, or put it another way, the responsible freedom of humanity. And if God is going to create, that's the kind of universe he creates. Now, that's summary of what we've done in the last several weeks. Picking up now in verse 7. Oh, please, yeah. Yeah, on, on page 6 there. Uh, this creation ordinance is the foundation of marriage, one man with one woman, without fear of exploitation. What what do you mean by without fear of exploitation? That either uh, one, the male or the female, will exploit and selfishly use one another for their own personal pleasure and gain. They are totally other-centered and devoted to each other. Okay. There's not the danger or the fear of exploitation or selfishness. You are in it together, and you are completely committed to this otherness. I know they're not really easy words in English because they're probably not even words, but that's how I think we're to really understand. This is what God wants in marriage. Thank you. Now, look at verse 7 with me. Um, This downward spiral, if you will, continues. Then their eyes were both opened. That's very important. Does that mean they were blind? No, 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 that's not what it means. Does it mean they had their eyes closed? No, that's not what it means. It's metaphorical. It's physical. Their eyes are now opened, and they knew that they were naked. Now, again, remember how that Hebrew word is used. Not only the consciousness and awareness that they don't have any clothes on, but the consciousness and awareness of their guilt that they have now participated in and are now joining with evil. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They now know it and they have experienced it. And they now have the burden of its guilt. Now, I'm, everything I just said in his last two sentences is theologically developed through the rest of the Bible. But that, that is what is in back of what it is explaining to us in verse 7. It is, it is, a, it is a, a sad, profound, disturbing 
and yet because of what God had said, an understandable consequence. Their eyes are open. Now they see evil, they experience evil, and they realize that they are now guilty of participating in it. And so immediately they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves long cloth. They cover themselves, they cover their genitals. That, I mean, I doubt that they're, she's making a hat for herself. They're covering their genitals. I mean, it's that awareness and consciousness of what they have done and the guilt. I mean, there, there, there's shame, there's guilt, and there's an overwhelming sense of separation, which you will see in the next verse. I said this last week. My wife said years ago when we were talking about this, she said, Adam and Eve are the only human beings that know what they lost. And that's true. They, they had experienced something that no other human being experienced. They personally walked with God in the garden. Now, you and I have begun, if you put your faith in Christ, you and I have begun the walk with God in the promises in eternity. We walk with God, forever be with him. But Adam and Eve, they lost it, and they knew they knew what they lost. And that, I honestly, I um, I've thought about that a long time, just trying to imagine what that would have been like for them. And you have a little bit of sense of it in verse eight. But I mean, they they're just aware. They're not only aware of the act that they've done, they they just committed, but they're now aware of the overwhelming burden that they now bear: guilt, shame a sense of evil, an experience of evil that they had never it had never been a part of their life up to that point. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> question about the, the tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Um, you know, in Sunday school, growing up, you, you, you read that they ate of the fruit and magically, like, I'm, I'm not magically, but you I, kind of get the sense as a kid that magically the fruit opened their eyes. Was, was the... Did God name this tree, I mean, just in your opinion here, did God name this tree that prophetically because he knew that that was going to happen because it was the sin itself that opened? Absolutely. Well, I mean, that's right. No, it wasn't the fruit that had necessarily, but it is that act of disobedience. But yet at the same time, uh, here we're in an area, not sure I'm in an area of certainty anyway, but um, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, um, whether it actually was that tree, the substance, the essence of that tree, that, or whether the act of disobedience, I, I'm not sure about that. Because uh, the, the Bible doesn't think else about it, other than you know he puts an angel there to guard so they can't go back. But um, it's, um, it seems to me that what God is doing with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is two things. One, it is a demonstration that they are moral agents. They're not robots or automatons. Those have the capacity to disobey as well as the capacity to obey. And secondly, he's saying the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, if you choose to eat of that, then what you now do not experience, do not understand, will never experience as long as you don't eat it, the guilt, the corruption, and the separation from me. That's the test. Can you trust me enough as free moral agents to do everything? Because he set no boundaries for what they could do. There was no other than don't eat. There was nothing negative or positive. It was just this is yours. Cultivate it. Which again is truly an amazing 
And he said, absolutely no boundaries and no limits on what they could do. He said one thing, trust me enough, don't eat of that tree. They're moral agents. So I don't think, Andrew, maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think there's anything substantively about the fruit. I think it is the act of disobedience that results to the both factual and experiential knowledge of evil, which they never, ever, they never understood what evil is. That's what naked really means. That's protective. That's good. But then the shame and the guilt and the corruption that, that enters uh, after they eat is un- unbelievable. It really is. That's a good question. Now, what I want to do, and I have it outlined that way on page um, seven of your notes, there are four major consequences of what happened when they ate. And I, I've kind of listed it down. I'm going to talk a little bit about it. As a matter of fact, not a little bit. I want to talk a lot about it. Because if you understand what is happening here, you understand why everything is in such a mess. This explains why we're in a mess. And I don't mean the political presidential campaign of 2016. I mean the mess of humanity. That's just a tiny little symptom of the larger mess. So I don't want to say anything about that, so don't draw me into a conversation. <laughs> Verse 8. We are to assume that what happens here was a daily aspect of their lives. The Lord comes into the garden to fellowship, to walk, to have that level of intimacy and affection with them. And they heard the sound of the Lord God God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. That presumably was the norm. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. They are consciously avoiding God. They are consciously, willfully hiding from God. Shame, guilt, corruption. Something has happened in the relationship, and it wasn't God's fault. They did it. And so naturally... They respond as the way every human being will respond that ever lives. They hide from God. They don't want to know him. They don't want to know about him. They don't want anything to do with him. Because of guilt, because of shame, and because of corruption. Now, that's not the way everybody would put it, but that's the biblical fact. And that is why it is so important that God... And that's the way the Bible presents it. God seeks to reconcile with his rebellious creatures because they don't want to reconcile with him. So they're hiding from him. In verse 9, but the Lord God called to the man. And in the Hebrew, that is gender specific, the male. Why? Why? Because he has primary responsibility. He received the moral law of God first. He was responsible. Again, Eve isn't mentioned here. Just like in Romans 5.12, Eve isn't mentioned. 
The primary responsibility for the fall is Adam's. Now, E is not to say she isn't complicit. Obviously, she is. She was deceived. Adam wasn't. But it is, it's, very, it's very clear. He calls to Adam, where are you? Um, God doesn't know. God can't find, where are you? You know, is that the spirit of it? Or is that a rhetorical question wanting them to own up to what they did? To confess what they did? So, verse 10, and he said, this be he is Adam, and I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. You didn't see that in verse 1, chapter 1, excuse me. You didn't see that in chapter 2. Fear of God. Because I was naked. And again, that, the importance of that word is that we've been explaining it. And I hid myself. Guilt, shame, corruption. You hide from God. And God said, verse 11, who told you you were naked? Again, go beyond just not having any clothes to what we've been saying. Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Again, I, I would contend that God is seeking a confession here. God is seeking an, a, a, an honest and forthright admission to what you have done. And so Adam says, yes, Lord, I did that. That, is, <laughs> not, that exactly. is not what he does. And honest men, again, when you see verse 12 and you see verse 13, you see how the human race now responds to God. They rationalize and they blame somebody else. It is not my fault. So Adam responds, verse 12, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. So in effect, Adam is blaming Eve and God. The woman you gave to me, not just the woman, but the, he didn't have to say it that way. The woman made me do it. No, the woman that you gave to me made me do it. There is the origin of every dispute between every husband and wife for the next thousands and thousands and thousands of years of human history. For some reason, whatever the exact specific issue is, it is really your fault, honey, that we're having this fight. It is really your fault that this, I, you know, I may have done, but it's really your fault. I mean, it's just, I know that for all of you around this table, that's just an abstract thought. You have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> you just have to sort of conceptually imagine this because the real world isn't like that for you. But it is that way in my marriage for 47 years. There are times when we just rationalize and blame. Let's put it a term that we often use in the 21st century, the victim mentality. I'm a victim. I'm really not responsible for this. I mean, honestly, you just see in a matter of moments what has happened. 
human beings creating God's image who were invited to be the creative cultivators with God of his whole world, the Garden of Eden at that point, clothed in innocence, absolutely no needs, with one command, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I'm asking because you're a moral creature. It's a test. Just please trust me with that. I have your best interest in heart. Trust. And they, they, they eat. And what had been fellowship and intimacy and trust now turns into guilt, shame, corruption, <clears throat> rationalization, and victimization. And those words I just went through, they're the words of humanity. 5,000 years of recorded history. That's, been, that's what it's been about. Guilt. Shame, corruption, self-centeredness, and all of the rationalization and victimization, that's, that's history. That's what it is. And it starts with this defiance of God's command. Uh, question though, also up in 6, he was, he was there, Adam was there, mm-hmm. and just sat there passively and let it happen too. You talk- no question, absolutely. So here he's trying to deflect it, not me. Yeah. No, he was right next to her. There was no doubt about that. He wasn't, you know, on the South Forty. He was right next to you. So it's just a. I I know you noticed. You probably heard many messages on this, but the language of this is really depressing language. But it's the it's the indication of what has happened to humanity: rationalization and blame. Now look at Eve, verse thirteen. Then the Lord God said to the woman, the Hebrew here is, it's almost untranslatable. What is this that you have done, ESV says? What in the world have you done is what Ekman says. It's, I mean, it's like, it's, it's like it's an astonishing rhetorical question. What in the world have you done? So Eve's response is, the serpent deceived me and I ate. It was the serpent's fault. It's not mine. He made me do it. I'm the oldest one in this room, so you don't, none of you know who this is, but there used to be a comic named Flip Wilson, who's famous saying was always, the devil made me do it. Well, I mean, in one sense, that's biblical. <laughs> not in a positive sense, but that's, a, that's biblical you know, rationalization. It's never accepted by God particularly. But it's just what you see, this rationalization and blame and victimization, it is not really my fault. So don't come to me, God. Which, of course, is just ludicrous. <laughs> There's a couple of things. Obviously, Adam and Eve, both, neither one of them are being straightforward. They're, of course. That's right. In a sense, lying. And there's an old saw that, you know, the best lie is, is rooted in as a grain of truth and it's rooted in truth. It creates credibility for the lie. The other question I have for, especially for Adam, maybe for you too, is: Was Adam silent in the face of evil? Was I Adam silent? Adam silent in the face of evil. Yes, absolutely. I think I said that last week when Eve reached up to take that fruit. He should have screamed, "Don't do it!" Yes. (laughs) But I mean, he he did, and and I think again that's why. Romans 5.12 does it. We saw that earlier, and God comes. The primary, that doesn't absolve Eve at all, but the primary, the primary responsibility is Adam. Adam is not deceived. Eve is. And so you, it's just, it's, it's the tragedy. 
It's the tragedy of sin. So in your notes, I call these verses spiritual death. They are now separated from God. They do not enjoy the fellowship. They do not enjoy the intimacy. That fellowship and intimacy has been replaced by guilt, by shame, by corruption, by rationalization, and by victimization. And it's, it's, it's separation from God. They no longer enjoy the intimacy with God. And that's what sin does. Sin separates us from God. And then that spiritual death and then physical death is what we'll get to a bit later. Um, you, you had mentioned earlier that God uh, provided the opportunity for, for Adam and Eve to confess, and particularly for Adam first, since he was the primary responsible one. Um, it, is, is, not that it really matters, but is the story different if they, uh, if they repent and confess their sin has now entered, so do they still I, I don't know um, exactly how I should answer that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, but it um, it would seem to me that the basic consequences would not have changed because the, now that sin has entered, like I, I like to put it, now that humanity has joined the rebellion against God, there has to be a just payment for that rebellion, which ultimately leads to the cross. It's probably one of the reasons why God says being clothed with a bunch of leaves from that tree over there is inadequate. I'm going to slay an animal, which seems to imply, which we will get to in a minute, is the shedding of blood. Blood atoned. Atone means cover. Blood atones for sin. And that's now. For you and me to have it cannot be at the same level. It cannot be at the same depth. I can still walk with you, but there has to be some atoning for this sin. There has to be the shedding of blood. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin, the book of Hebrews said. So that seems to be. So I don't, I don't think it would ultimately have affected the consequence of their sin, Aaron, uh, Andrew. I just, I just don't see anything. That's why some suggest, and this may be another way to look at it, some suggest that God is asking that question rhetorically, knowing what they were doing, hiding from him. Uh, you know, f- feeling the guilt and shame, which obviously they already felt. And he wants to just expose the depths of that. And instead of them owning up to it, they rationalize and blame, which is the pattern of humanity for the next however many thousands of years it's been since Adam and Eve. So it's just, uh, it's a monumental tragedy. It's, it's I think, I, I've studied this many, 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 many times. Every time I study, I just, I almost come to tears. Because you just, you just, how could they do this? But the sense of Scripture seems to be if every one of us in this room were there, we would have done the same thing, which is really an encouraging thought, but it seems to be the case. All right? Hey, yeah, Daryl. Yeah, it's really hard to comprehend why God was so patient to go through this. He could have, even when went back to Satan, when he asked about God could have just Yeah. 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 And that remains, there's a degree of mystery with that. But it does get, and I think that's maybe where you're going with that comment, it gets to the heart of the character of God. At the heart of God is love. God is love, 1 John 4, twice it appears. 
And his patience and his grace and his compassion and his mercy flow out of that. And so God, and this isn't how it happened, because I don't think God thinks that way, but then God said, okay, I've got to devise a plan to win them back. You know, because I, I maybe Daryl wouldn't be that way, but I know what I, if I'd have been God, that'd have been it. I'd annihilated them. That's it. I'd have smoked them right there. And I'm either going to start over or angels, it's just you and me, and we're going to get rid of Satan and everything. So it's just, that's all it's going to be. I created you angels, and I'm okay with that. But these humans, there's no way. That's not what God does. That, that brings up an interesting point. My, my mind keeps snapping back to this freedom thing, you know, and, and God's desire for a truly independent, sentient companion. Apparently, the angels did not measure up to that. God had a need to create human beings, not just spiritual beings. Now, I don't like you making the statement that God has a need. I don't, I don't like that idea because I don't, I know what you're saying, but don't put it around God has a need. I don't think God has a need. Would, would there be a desire there? Well, I think so. I mean, in the sense that God makes the conscious, if again we put it in human terms, God makes the conscious decision to create. And he makes the conscious decision that a part of his creative act is going to be, someone's going to be my steward. And it's not going to be the angels. They serve, an angel by definition is a servant, a messenger. They are not my stewards. I'm going to create image bearers. You angels are helping me in communicating with, administering. They seem to have administrative authority. And this is what, because we just don't know an awful lot about the angels in terms of what they do. But so that wasn't, they, it was never their purpose. God's singular purpose in terms of his creation is image bearers who administer and manage his world for him to his glory. But in order, in order for that to occur, it, they, they have to be responsibly free. I mean, he could have created just, you know, like the automaton, which today is very easy to imagine because we see it, <coughs> this robot. They're going to just do it. Well, okay, then, in a way, what, the, what, what is that? It's just it's a robotic universe? That, that, that doesn't fit the character of God. If God is love, and the Father, Son, and Spirit have loved and had communion with one another for all eternity, then that's the kind of image he wants, who will choose to love him and choose to creatively cultivate with him, not as robots, but as an act of their will. And to, if you're going to make it that way, then you, by definition, you have to also create that possibility that they will choose to rebel against you. Because if, if you're going to have responsible freedom, that it must be they can choose the other way. That gets into all those issues of free will, which I don't want to get into. But it's the railroad tracks to me. That's how I deal with it. But that's, I mean, it's a great, it's a great, it's a great idea for us to think through and work through and contemplate and meditate upon what our God is like. And he will do everything he possibly can to get his image bearers back to a relationship with him. But it has to be on his terms. His justice, his love, everything has to match up. Okay, the first consequence then is spiritual separation, spiritual death, if you will. The second is the curse upon all of creation. That goes through verse 19. Now, 
I, I really, I really want you to understand what's going on here. Because at first, you first read this, you think, oh, this isn't fair. Why blame the animals and all the inanimate objects and everything else? Why curse them? Because now listen, Adam and Eve and humanity are God's stewards. They are his dominion stewards. They have authority over his world to administer it in his name for his glory. But in their fallenness now, they can't do that. And so the consequence of that is going to be everything is bearing a, going to bear a curse. Everything is going to be banished from the perfect blessing of God. Everything is going to be banished from the fullness of the fertility and harmony that God wants in his world. From here on out, because his dominion stewards have rebelled against him, everything else is going to be affected. That's how we're supposed to look at this. Do you understand what I've just said? In, in other words, because the dominion stewards of God have chosen rebellion against him, the consequence is everything else in God's world is affected by that. And so everything now is outside the fullness of the harmony and fertility and blessing. It's still possible for the creation of God to be blessed with a certain degree of abundance, but it's going to take a lot of hard work, a lot of painful toil, that wasn't there before sin. And so God says, first to the serpent, I'm in verse 14 now, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. This is talionic justice. This is the justice of God. Because of this, this is now what you're going to do. You're going to slither in the dust. That's your nature. But then far more importantly, Satan, who has incarnated this serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. Now that... Without the rest of the Bible, it would be hard to figure out exactly what that means. But what that means is, from the woman will come one who will end all this. In theology, we call this the proto-euangelion. Aren't you glad I told you that? The first announcement of the gospel. The first announcement of hope. It isn't going to stay this way. Because from woman is going to come someone who will end the rebellion. Bruise your head, you'll bruise his heel. That we will understand as we get to the New Testament is the cross. But he will do away with you. You'll touch his heel, he'll crush your head. Again, I mean, it's figurative stuff, but you get the point. I mean, it's really, it is an announcement. It isn't that it's going to be this way. And the enmity, the enmity means enemy, between, the, 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 between Satan and the, and the woman is going to be reflected, continuing. You'll see more about that in the next, in the next uh, couple of verses. But it's, uh, it's just, okay, the serpent is cursed, Satan is cursed. And the promise is it's not going to stay this way. But that's all. Now, the rest of the Bible is going to start to explain who is this he. And we, we need the rest of the Bible to understand who the he is. 
But by the time you end the Bible, the last verse of Revelation, who's the he? It's Jesus. It's the Christ. It's the Son of God. It's the one who came in his first advent to pay the penalty of sin, coming in the second advent to crush the rebellion and set up the rule of God on earth. And throw you, Satan, into the lake of fire. But you don't get all that from this half of verse uh, 15. But the rest of the Bible explains how this is going to happen. So in the, in the midst of all of this despair is a promise. And the rest of the Bible will explain how this promise is fulfilled. Now, in verse 6, okay, I'm not, there's nothing hard there. That, okay, any, you with me? Now, the next part of the curse is on the woman. Now, men, this, this is really, really important. I will surely... Multiply your pain in childbearing, and in pain you should bring forth children. And that I, I don't have any other way to understand that than childbirth is going to be difficult now. I mean, the pain. I mean, many of you are married, and you know what your wives have gone through to have your children and all of that, and that is really true. But the second half, the second half is far, far more tragic. Now, to really understand what is going on in the second half of verse 16 is you've got to go back to the end of chapter 2, where God creates, brings the woman and man together, and you remember that little commentary, we talked about that earlier, even today, and for this reason a man shall leave, shall cleave, and to become one flesh, they're naked, not ashamed. That's the ideal, a complementary union between a man and a woman, where they complement one another, in a beautiful one flesh union. But now with sin, guilt, corruption, shame, self-centeredness, that's going to break down. The effect of sin on the marriage relationship is devastating. And there are two key words there. The word desire and the word rule. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Don't ever use this verse as the perfection of marriage. This isn't a perfection of marriage verse. That the rule of the man, that's it, the man's to rule over the wife. That's not. This is distortion. This is sin. This is the consequence of rebellion. In that phrase, shall rule over you is every act of physical and emotional abuse that a man can sever out to his wife. Because he now, instead of being the loving servant he is supposed to be, he will hammer his wife into submission. Using physical abuse and emotional abuse, he will abandon, man will abandon, the husband will abandon his God-ordained, other-centered way of serving and guarding and protecting and loving his wife. That's why you go to the New Testament, you see in Christ that's restored. Ephesians 5, Colossians 3, in Christ that's supposed to be restored. This is that's a horrible statement. Rule, that is not a positive statement. That is not a verse you use for the idea of a husband being head and the wife. That is not what you do. The other part is have desire. That word is used in Genesis chapter 4, verse 8, when God says to Cain that Satan, excuse me, sin 
has a desire for you. Sin seeks to rule over you. So the desire is not healthy. The desire is abnormal desire. The wife now will seek to lead. The wife now will seek to dominate. The wife now will seek to manipulate. The wife now will seek to control. And the beauty of the complementary relationship that was established by God's ideal between Adam and Eve is now devastated. And the rest of the human, the rest of human history is men and women without Christ trying to figure out how they're supposed to get along. Y'all. So, is it the phrase, your, your desire shall be for your husband? I guess I've heard two explanations of that or two thoughts on that. And one is like physical or attracted to your husband and the other is maybe more what you said where it's like your desire is to kind of usurp the, the the word the word desire there is not necessarily used. It's almost always used as not physically desiring, but the desiring to be in the position that person's in. It's usurping that role. Yeah, it's not the physical sexual desire. It is the desire I want to usurp. I want to be what you are. God said you're supposed to be head of the house. Adam blew that as you know in, in chapter two, uh, chapter three. I want that. And so, I mean, and seriously, from here on out in human history, if a person is not in a, if a husband and wife are not in, a, in an intimate relationship with God based on their faith and trust in him, they're going to be trying to figure out how do we make this work. One of my favorite, this has nothing to do, but in a way it does. One of my favorite television programs of years ago was Home Improvement. Isn't that what it was called? I think that's what it was called. But it was uh, Tim and whatever her name was. Tim, the tool man guy. You know, Tim had no idea how to be a husband. Remember, that's the whole theme of the book. I mean, he goes to his neighbor, whatever his name was, never see his face. And he always gives him all these quotes from ancient writers and Hinduistic literature and Buddhist stuff. This is how you do it, Tim. Tim has no idea. And Jill, Jill, that's right, Jill, Jill isn't sure, but all she knows is he ain't doing it right, so I'm not sure what I'm supposed to be doing. You know, it's just they can't figure it out. And that, that is, it was humorous, and the reason, it, I guess it was a hit, I, mean, I think it was, it was on for a while, is because everybody could identify what was going on in that program. I mean, some of the, the, the situation stuff was sort of silly, but you really didn't have any trouble identifying what was going on. Tim's trying to figure out what it means to be a husband, and she's trying to figure out what it means to be a wife. And instead of quoting Hinduism, he should be going to the scriptures, which I don't think he ever did. Maybe he did. I don't think he ever did. But but I'm, I'm making humor out of something. It is really true. Because what God is saying at the end of verse 16 is exactly what happened. Now, now that guilt, shame, corruption... Rationalization, victimization is entered into your relationship. This is the way it's going to be. And unless you turn back to me and reestablish faith and trust and intimacy with me, you'll never get it right. It's one of the reasons why, what do you see in the Old Testament? You see polygamy, you see bigamy, you see jealousy, you see envy, you see dysfunction. Because they can't get it right. <laughs> and it's it's just, I, I'm... I'm I'm preaching here more than I'm teaching, but it's the it's the importance of really understanding those words. They are not positive words. Desire rule. They are extremely negative, dysfunctional words that are 
that are only done away with when people come to Christ and putting it in the New Testament way because we live on this side of the cross. And this, then, then you have the capacity to get right. So, okay, I was really, I apologize. I really was thinking I was in the pulpit at church somewhere instead mm-hmm. of teaching. But it's really, I feel strongly about this. I really do because it is, I have heard, this is, goes back quite a few, but I heard a pastor stand up in the pulpit and use this passage as the passage of how a husband and wife are related to each other. That man didn't do his homework. That man did not understand what was going on in this text. It really was tragic. But that doesn't have anything to do with anything. All right, let's look at Adam. Now, what does God say to Adam in verse 17? Again, this is continuing the consequences on God's world of human rebellion. And Adam, he said to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree. Now, that is really, really important, isn't it? It gets back to the primary responsibility is Adam's. <coughs> he, unlike Eve, he wasn't deceived. He intentionally, willfully, with full understanding, knew what he was doing. Which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. You shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you were served. This will be the pattern until you physically die. Now, work, this isn't work. This is painful, toilsome work. Work preceded the fall. Genesis 2, Adam is working the garden. And the word is used of work. What changes is the painful talk. I would infer that there weren't any dandelions in the Garden of Eden. (laughs) There weren't any thistles in the Garden of Eden. Uh, My wife found there's some kind of crawling weed that just, it's like tentacles going on everywhere. She said, honey, get the Roundup. You've got to get that because if you don't get it, it's going to be devastating in my flower bed. Last Saturday, I didn't use Roundup. I think I used, what's the other one? Weed be gone, I think. But anyway... So, I mean, it's just, I would assume that in the pre-fall earth, that's not what you saw. Or if they were, they were flowers, and you could, I don't know. But anyway, all Adam, or all God is saying is, because of what you've done, now everything you do is going to be toilsome, it's going to be hard. And by the sweat of your face, I'm assuming it wasn't hot and humid in the Garden of Eden. (laughs) Boy, nobody's responding to that. Okay. I'm just, you know, I don't know. I'm just sort of kidding there. But it's just, now it's painful toil. Work was in the garden, but now it's a different type of work. And you are going to have to work hard physically, and it's going to be toilsome, and it's going to be frustrating to feed yourself, to feed your family, and to sustain your life. You are a creative cultivator as my perfect dominion steward. You're still my dominion steward, and you still have the responsibility and the right to cultivate my garden. But it's going to be a lot more difficult. And so every, everything in creation is affected by this. And it seems correct. I, almost every expositor 
agrees with us. It seems correct that they're vegetarian. They do not start eating meat until after the flood. But we'll get to that later on. I wouldn't necessarily die for that. And that isn't the case that Christians should be vegetarians. That's not what I'm saying. It's just it seems that's what the text is saying to us. Now, now listen to me. Well, as if you're not listening to me, but this is a really important point. Moses writes this. He records it. The book of Deuteronomy tells us a number of times when God says, write all this down, Moses. Write all this down. Record all this. I want you to, this is, this is going to be Torah. I want you to have all this down. So he does. So you're reading this as a Jew. It's a, let's just make it up. It's about 1420 B.C. The Exodus occurs in 1446. They're, you know, they're, they're settling down now. They, they're at, and then you read this now. Let's fast forward another 100 years. It's 1350. Okay, and you read this. What are you supposed to conclude? You're to conclude something that every time you read it and every time I read it, we are to reach this conclusion. Sinful rebellion against God brings pain, conflict, dysfunction, death. It's horrible. But confession to God, agreeing with God, brings forgiveness and brings the possibility of a rela- it's still the curse is still there but Adam and Eve are going to be restored to a relationship with God but now they have to live with the consequences let's put it even simpler acts of sinful rebellion always have a consequence that's the way God made his world Acts of sinful rebellion always have a consequence. Not most of the time, not some, always have a consequence. And you look throughout the Bible, even these great saints who are held up in the chapter 11 of, of Hebrews, the, the hall of fame of all the great saints of history and so on. Abraham, God promises you're going to have a son, and they wait 25 years for that son. But in that 25-year period, he disobeys. He was in, had sexual relationships with Hagar, and what does that result in? Ishmael. And the origin of the Arab-Israeli conflict is right there. Profound, deep consequence. King David walked with God, called the friend of God, intimacy with God, read the Psalms. But Bathsheba, Uriah, does God forgive him? Yes. Does God cleanse him? Yes. Does God restore the relationship? Yes. But it's consequent. You read, you read the historical narrative in 2 Samuel. David's monarchy is a lot different after the sin with Bathsheba. He loses his decisiveness. And his son, Absalom, rebels against him. And the dysfunction of his family, because he's unwilling to be the moral leader of his home, when one of his sons rapes his half-sister, David doesn't do anything. David does nothing. Probably because it reminded him of what he did with Bathsheba. How can I act on my son when I did the same thing? And so he doesn't do anything. And so the dysfunction of his family is horrible. Jacob is uh, one of the patriarchs, a great, a great man in the Abraham-Isaac-Jacob 
But Jacob was a terrible father. You read, you read the account of, da of Jacob's family in Genesis. Peggy was reading that a number of years ago. She said, you know, honey, I, Jacob's family was really dysfunctional. Yeah, it was. Because he was a heel catcher. He was the manipulator. He was the controller. He didn't do a very good job. It's on and on. Sinful rebellion always brings a consequence. Is there forgiveness? Yes. Is there restoration? Yes. But the consequences are often there. So what's the lesson? Avoid sinful rebellion. <laughs> Walk in loving obedience with God. God will always restore those who belong to him and those who come into his, his family by faith. He always, he, he's our heavenly father. And I don't know about you men, but I'm still learning the truth of that. that sinful rebellion always brings a consequence. God restores, God forgives, but there's often a consequence that goes with it. I just, uh, something funny happened to me last year. I was, I was doing the Bible in a year, and uh, mm. I got to, the, I believe it's in Leviticus, where the, the, the sacrificial system is established and all that. Yeah. And Leviticus and Deuteronomy and Numbers and all those, where over and over and over and over and over, I mean, you think the livestock must be dwindling <laughs> because there's so yeah. much sacrifice needing to happen. And then in my 21st century mind, I'm, I, I laughed at myself because I started to relativize it. I was like, gosh, they're going to run out of animals. Why, why do they have to do this every time? Yeah, I mean, just the, the yeah. mind went. Um, yeah. But yeah, so yep. it just made me think of that. Yeah. <laughs> I was in another Bible class. We were talking about the ten plagues, and, and, and the same concept came up. There's, these plagues were so devastating. Was there were they, was there anybody left to suffer the second, the next one? <laughs> were there any animals left? Were there any resources, plants whatsoever? Yeah. <clears throat> All right, uh, Joel. Please. I just have a question, kind of on the, uh, the theology of work, if you will. It's a good. That's a good phrase. Theology of work. Yeah. The just the you know the, and culturally right now for the millennials and stuff there's this kind you know this idea that they're getting hit with all the time that you know well do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life and that kind of mentality <laughs> yeah. versus the hey it's you know you got to work and it's part of the curse quote unquote or whatever and I you know I don't know I think both both of those are maybe extremes is there something in the middle that is biblical. Um, <laughs> yes, but I think um, Colossians 3, verse 22 through 4, 1 is one of the best passages on the work ethic, on a, if you will, theology of work, um, which I think is, that, is the corrective. It doesn't say anything about the severity of your work the toil of your work and hard it is it's work hard work consistently work obediently work sincerely because your real boss is jesus the only time in the new testament the lord christ you serve lord jesus christ is all over christ lords over it lord christ it's very unusual construction and then he adds in verse 24 because you know that god will reward you for this so, Joel, it seems to me that there's something added there that you see it, but it's really so clear there. There's an eternal significance to work. It matters to God how you approach your job, whatever it is you do. And it's, it's the attitude and the, um, 
the uh, characteristics of your approach to work. It's always going to be hard. It's always going to be tossing this side of, of eternity. But the approach now is to do it to the glory of God, to do it with, with eternal significance in mind. And it's, it's, it's refreshing, and it doesn't, in one sense, it doesn't make it easier because the toil's still there. But this idea, Joel, that you're right, in some of the language that the, the millennials, both people writing for the millennials and millennials writing, is almost an easy street approach to the, quote, good life, close quote. I'm not sure, that seems to me to be a cleverly phrased lie. <laughs> that is being floated out there. I, I just, uh, I'm not sure that's the right, the right approach we should uh, be, be either teaching or certainly be buying into. But it does seem to me that a person who really looks at their work the way Colossians 3.22 and so on, it, that, that's liberating. It really is. It's a refreshing way to look at my work. It, my real boss is Jesus. I do have a boss, and I'm consistently, obediently, sincerely doing what he's asking me to do. But I'm really, really doing it for the Lord. So what was lost in Adam is restored in Christ. And what the perspective that we are to have is because we're new creatures. We're new creation. We're, we're part of the new order. So we are starting to manifest what will be a part of the eternal state, when we are bringing everything we do as worshipfully to the Lord. I did this for you today, Lord. I'm not sure we'll exactly say it that way, but Revelation 22 just implies that, that what we do in the new heaven and new earth, we'll do for Jesus. This is what I did for you today, Lord. It seems to me that's what we should be doing today. This is what I did for you today, Lord. You know, Lord willing, unless it's raining on Friday morning, I'll cut my grass. And I want to have this perspective. I did this for you today, Lord. I'm taking care of this little slab of land you gave me. And I'll keep the weeds out of my flower beds for my wife because, Lord, I'm doing this for you. I mean, that's the approach we're supposed to have. That is not the approach of the person outside of Christ. What is lost in Adam is restored in Christ. My goodness, we better quit. You know, we're really... You know, we've been at this for weeks, and we're still only in chapter three. But it's it's so important to get this right. I mean that, and I, I I'm a little frustrated sometimes just in in how superficially people treat these these chapters. They are not to be treated superficially. These are some of the most important chapters in the Bible because when you understand them, you understand the mess that we're in and what God is doing to get their mess taken care of. I'm going to pray, and then we'll get out, I guess, for the rain. I assume it's still raining. Lord, these are hard verses to study. Uh, it is, um, in the real meaning of that word, it is almost unbelievable what Adam and Eve did and the consequences of that. But in a way, it's so important because it helps us to understand why the human race is in such a mess. That sinful rebellion against you does bring pain, dysfunction, conflict, hurt, and ultimately separation from you and an eternal uh, separation from you. But Jesus, Jesus undoes all that. That's what the cross and the resurrection are all about. 
He's undoing the curse. And what was lost in Adam is restored in Christ. That's one of the great messages of Scripture. That's what Genesis 3.15 was pointing toward. That from the seed of the woman is going to come one who's going to end this. And the Bible makes it clear through the remaining books that that's Jesus the Christ. So we worship you today, Lord, for who you are and what you've done. The importance of the cross and the resurrection. The importance of your willingness, O oh God, to do what you did to win us back. And as we, one of the guys said, it was Daryl, that, you know, it's amazing that God just didn't annihilate everything, either start over or just abandon the project. But he didn't do that. And those of us sitting around this table are very thankful that we are going to enjoy eternity with you because you cared enough for us. You loved us enough to make a way back to you. And those that have put their faith in Christ know that way back. We found it. Thank you for your word, for these men. Give them a good day. Watch over us as we drive around with the rain and everything. And we ask your blessing on our families and all we do today and all we say, might we represent you well. In Christ's name, amen. amen. See you next week.